open again. Once again, there's a, a handout to go with this talk, which you can do with as you will. I want to begin this talk by uh, talking about what you might call the, the strange phenomenon of, of people who believe but don't act upon it. I guess you might call these, these people non-compliant believers. They believe something, but it just remains something in their heads. They, they don't actually do anything about it. Um, what do I really mean by that? I mean people who believe in God... I believe, who believe that his kingdom is coming, who even believe that judgment is coming for those who remain opposed to God, but who do absolutely nothing about it. Now, you might have thought that was surely impossible, uh, but actually it's surprisingly common. I can remember being very struck by a story I heard in London from someone who'd been witnessing to a non-Christian friend for many, many years, and then he was politely asked by his friend to stop doing it. Uh, some of you may have been through a similar kind of experience. Uh, why? He asked. So what is it about the Christian message that you can't believe? Oh, I do believe it, was the surprising response. It's just that I have too much to lose. Now that kind of response actually has quite a long pedigree to it when you stop to think about it. I think of the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 19 and in some of the other Gospels too, asking about eternal life. And Matthew reports that when the man heard what Jesus had to say, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So some people have too much to lose. For some others, though, the, the very idea of relating to God is so distasteful that they don't want to have anything to do with it, even if it is true. Uh, I knew a professor at University College London, uh, someone called Ken Binmore, uh, who was often saying that he thought the idea of praising God forever, the Christian idea of praising God forever in eternity, simply made him feel nauseous. Uh, I think he would have uh, perversely quite liked this comparison, but that does make him rather like some of the demons we encounter Uh, In the Gospel accounts, let me uh, read to you from one such encounter. This is from Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 28 to 34. When Jesus had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarene, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, "'What have you to do with us, Son of God?' Have you come to here to torment us before the time? Now a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they'd come out, they, they entered the pigs, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. The men who tended them fled, I went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. And at that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. They saw him, but they begged him to leave their region. I just want you to notice from that story that the demons believe. They clearly believe 
in a future judgment. They believe all the things that we were talking about um, in, in our last session yesterday. Uh, they're just a little surprised, perhaps, that it's happening early. Why have you come to torment us before the time, they say? Now, it may have been that the demons are, are never given the opportunity to experience mercy. That may, may well be true. Even so, it's surprising here that demons ask not for mercy, but for one final destructive fling before they're destroyed. They'd rather have that than have anything to do with God. Now, even more surprising is, is the way that that attitude is echoed in the, in the response of those from the local town. So Jesus has shown them something amazing, you know, his mercy at work in these, in these men who have been tormented for so many years. And he's shown them a foretaste of future judgment as he's, he's, he's cast out the demons and they've been destroyed in the pigs. But they would rather not know. They would rather not know. They would rather Jesus just went away. Uh, they would rather he wasn't there so they could hang on to their pigs. I want to suggest to you this morning that we can find some help in understanding this strange phenomenon of believing but not acting, uh, of non-compliant belief. We can get some help from uh, the very clever uh, Frenchman we met for the first time yesterday, uh, Blaise Pascal. And if Pascal's famous for anything, he's uh, famous for what his, is called his wager, Pascal's wager. I have to be careful here because what Pascal originally said about his wager, actually, when you look into it, isn't very helpful at all. Uh, what he said in his, his collection of, of notes, it is called the thoughts or the, the pensées, uh, was this. <clears throat> he said, wager then without hesitation that God exists. Uh, there's an infinity of an infinitely happy life to gain uh, and a chance of gain against a finite number of chances of loss. And what you stake is finite, uh, if you're following that. In other words... Comply with the gospel message because the infinite rewards that will be yours if it turns out that God does exist swamp every other consideration. It's, it, it's something like that. Now, you won't be surprised to, to learn that when people have tried to use that, uh, to use Pascal's wager as an apologetic argument in the pub or whatever, it, generally speaking, it hasn't worked very well. I'd like to give it a try tonight, see how it goes. But can we rescue this argument, I wonder? Now, Carl Truman argued in some talks earlier this year at New Word Alive that, that Pascal never actually intended his uh, wager to be used as, a, as, as an apologetic argument in, in the kind of way that I've just said. It's not an argument you've, this is not an argument really that you'll find like this in the Bible. It's not an argument that makes much sense in itself. It's just a way, perhaps, of ridiculing the rationality of those who choose not to, not to wager for God. That's, that's roughly what Carl Truman's view on this. But actually, I'm not sure that that's quite right either. No, the truth is, is, is rather simpler and blunter. Pascal made a mistake. Pascal's wager, as he originally put it, doesn't make sense. And uh, not surprisingly, really, after all, the, the point is they're just collections of notes. Uh, it's not a finished work. Now, he died before he could finish uh, doing these things, and they were pu- published after his, after his death. And I'm pretty sure that if he'd ponsayed just a little bit more, he would have seen that mistake uh, for himself. 
Yeah, I'm not going to say very much about the, the mistake that Pascal made it. It has to do with um, using what are called infinite payoffs in decision theory, uh, which make the decisions you're modeling nonsensical. Um, it will suffice to say, I think, if we, if we correct Pascal's mistake and, uh, and uh, think about finite uh, uh, payoffs in decisions, and then we can rescue his idea of a wager. We can reformulate it so it does make sense. And when we do that, what we get is an argument that is, in fact, when you stop to think about it, strongly biblical. And we find it in Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 13. And indeed, we see it across the whole of the New Testament. Uh, and we'll see more of that later. I've shown the modified Pascal's wager in this table. So there's no complicated diagrams uh, in this session, unlike the other ones. Uh, we've just got a slightly complicated table instead. Uh, but not too complicated, I hope. Um, let me t- see if I can explain uh, what's going on here, uh, roughly. You can just about see what's going on, I think, certainly from your handout. Let's suppose first, suppose you're absolutely sure that the gospel message is false. Okay, just run run the argument. That's the, that's the right-hand column. In the future, uh, there's just nothing. Okay, so that doesn't affect your, your decision about how to respond. In the present, there's a cost from being a Christian. You know, it's a costly thing to do. There's, there's, there's persecution, there's mockery, there are all sorts of other costs as well. Uh, if, uh, if you don't comply, though, you know, there's no cost. You know, nothing changes particularly. Uh, it doesn't then make much sense to, to, to be Christian, does it? Uh, if we comply with the gospel when it's not true... Uh, then as the Apostle Paul puts it, so in 1 Corinthians 15, if in hope, if in Christ we hope in this life only, and that's it, we of all people are most to be pitied. So that's the left-hand column. That's uh, sorry, the right-hand column. But it's, a, it's the left-hand column that's really interesting here. Suppose now that you're absolutely sure, absolutely sure that the Christian message is true. Now, it may now make sense to you to, to, to comply with that message, as we might expect. But here's the rub. It may not. It still may not make sense to comply with it. For example, if you were so focused on the present, you know, that it's the present cost of being a Christian that dominates your thinking, then you're not going to comply. Okay? That, that will outweigh uh, anything else. If you had a vast amount to lose in the present, then you would not comply. That's why, as Jesus said, it's uh, so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of the heavens. Or if, like the demons in Matthew chapter 8, or or my friend Professor Ken Binmore, you so hated the idea of an eternity relating to God that you preferred the punishment instead, then again, you would not comply, despite the fact that you believe it. So the, this modified way of thinking things can, can also can, can help us to understand this, this strange phenomenon of, of non-compliant belief. But it can also explain the, the, the even more common phenomenon of, of a partial or, or a faltering compliance. You know, Christians who believe, and yet their compliance with the gospel and God's purposes um, is shaky. So they fall into all sorts of trouble, anxiety, pride, 
a misplaced shame, impatience, covetousness, lust. Okay? So, I mean, those things can happen for a number of reasons. So, for example, as we doubt, you know, that we won't comply, that's for sure. So, as our belief wavers, we won't comply. But also, what this helps us to see is that if we make mistakes about the value of being in the, in the, in the kingdom in the future, or the, the, the relative costs of punishment in the future um, compared to what's going on in the present, then again we'll make mistakes and we may not comply, or we may not comply fully all the time. Now what I hope we're going to see in this session is that this, this modified way of thinking about things helps us to see how the Bible functions to, to, to help us to bring about a wholehearted, full-hearted compliance with God's plans and purposes. And, and here's the key thing I want us to see this time. It, it does so not just by persuading us about the truth of the message, although it does do that, of course, and that is vital, but also by persuading us of the relative value of being in the kingdom and how that overwhelms the short-term cost of suffering and tribulation and persecution from being a Christian now. Both those things are necessary, actually. Not only are we to believe the message, we also have to believe the relative value of being aligned with God's kingdom purposes. And recognizing and seeing that value is the key to the kind of faltering compliance that we struggle with in our Christian lives. Now, these talks have been aimed at uh, encouraging you to, to, to persevere in discipleship and to be equipped for mission through the uncovering of God's purposes in the world through his word. Uh, so the, the, the last talk that we had uh, in, the, in the session yesterday uh, was about understanding how God's words envision, uh, how his words un- uncover the truth about time and history. But as we've said already this morning, knowing the truth about the future may not be enough in itself. So the purpose of this talk is is to add to that, and it's really quite simple. It's for you to understand the enriching purpose of God's word. It's to change your minds now about the relative value of being aligned with God's kingdom purposes. That is, in as much as the value you place on that is less than it should be, I want to correct that. Uh, This time I'm going to argue this in four steps. Firstly, I'm going to say that Jesus' final purpose in speaking in parables as it's laid out in this uh, chapter of the Gospel, is to uncover for his disciples truths of great value to them. He's serving this role of a, of a scribe who's, been made, who, who's, who's bringing out treasures uh, for other people. In these parables, he's uncovering the relative value of being on the right side of the division that God is creating now, of that division that we talked about yesterday, uh, through his word. Uh, and in the future, it's going to be through the, the separating judgment at the end of the age. But what Jesus does in the parables here, he also does more widely in his preaching. And God does more widely across the scriptures. So and having seen that, having recognized the amazing relative value of being aligned with God's kingdom purposes, then let us change our minds about that and, uh, and comply and we're going to think, uh, finish by thinking through some of the ways in which a change of mind on that thing may, may address the problem of, of our 
our half-heartedness in the Christian life, the partial compliance that we were talking about earlier. Let's begin then with the, uh, the third and final purpose statement in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus' final purpose behind speaking in parables, uh, according to the last, last two verses in, in the speech, has been to uncover truths of great value. Now, you might not see that at first. There's a, slight, a slightly cryptic exchange going on here between Jesus and the disciples, but I hope we'll see that that is true. So as Jesus finishes his teaching in Matthew chapter 13, um, the, the New International Version puts what happened like this over from verse 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as, as, well as old. However, verse 52 here should probably read as I put it on your handout. And it's also up on the screen here too. Therefore, every scribe who has been made a disciple in or for the kingdom of the heavens is like a householder who brings out of his treasure store new and old. Uh, I'm making that point mainly just to show you the link between what Jesus is saying here and what we've looked at previously about what he said from the Great Commission. Remember, the Great Commission is about making disciples in all the nations, or well, this again is about uh, someone who has been made a disciple, a scribe who has been made a disciple uh, for serving within the kingdom of the heavens. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Oh, okay, it still not, may not be very clear to you. What exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, let me suggest that it goes like this. Take Jesus first um, as the model of what's going on. See, what Jesus has been doing in this chapter is, has been uncovering the secrets of the kingdom of uh, the kingdom of the heavens for his disciples. Remember verse 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens has been given to you. What he's now implying at the end of his teaching is that inasmuch as they have understood what is told them, they have received treasure of great value. Now, uh, we might well wonder quite how much the disciples have understood at this stage in the proceedings. You know, one of the great characteristics of the disciples in the Gospels is their um, unparalleled dimness. Okay. Nevertheless, inasmuch as they have understood something, that is what's going on. And at some point they will understand. And that understanding will be of great value to them. In teaching these things, Jesus has acted like a, a scribe, a teacher for the kingdom of the heavens. That is, he has acted like a teacher who serves and proclaims and promotes the kingdom of the heavens. So that's what Jesus has been doing. Now look at verse 52 again. Now he's saying that any person who has made a disciple of his and who understands the kingdom of the heavens may likewise serve and proclaim and promote the kingdom of the heavens. Just like Jesus in this chapter, such a person is uncovering things of great value uh, for those they are teaching. Indeed, uh, what they're going to be doing is bringing out out of their treasure stores both new things and old things. Uh, What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I guess the new things are 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 the new things that Jesus has been proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom. 
all that uh, Jesus has done and is doing to bring the kingdom of the heavens into a reality across time and history. Old things, things that have been revealed before, uh, things that God's people kind of know about, uh, but have been forgotten, that need, they need reminding about. So that's the, the, uh, the task that Jesus is setting out uh, for his disciples. Now, I was reflecting again on this this morning, and I do think we should, we should pause here and th- just think through the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. Many of us here will be involved in teaching roles of one sort or another. All of us, in some sense, since everyone within the body of Christ has a duty to speak the truth to one another in love, um, have a, a kind of teaching or training role within the church. But some of us have uh, more formal teacher pastor like roles, and uh, many of you here will be hoping to take up such roles in the future. Now, if that is you, uh, let me warn you that it can be a relentless and a tough and often thankless task. You can put your heart and soul into it over many years and end up fairly disappointed. Disappointed with yourself and uh, with those you are teaching. There is a, there's a danger as a teacher of embitterment and frustration and self-doubt. And such feelings come to every Christian teacher from time to time. I know that from my own experience, and you'll probably know it from yours too. And sometimes it becomes so intense that it will destroy a teacher. But look again at verse 52. The scribe, or the teacher, who has been made a disciple of Jesus in and for the kingdom of the heavens, has the remarkable privilege of doing what Jesus did. Can you think of a a greater privilege than that? And look again at what Jesus compares that to. Imagine uh, getting home this evening and finding on your doorstep a a Christmas hamper, perhaps. And let's make it a Christmas hamper from Harrods. A Christmas hamper, one of the posher Christmas hampers from uh, from Harrods. I looked it up on the web this morning. There is one called the Ultimate Christmas hamper that costs five thousand pounds. <laughs> and on this hamper is a label on it, and it says just a few words, just four words, please throw a party. Now that's a great gift to receive, isn't it? It's a great gift because it allows you to be a giver to other people. Well, if you are a teacher who has been made a disciple of Jesus for the kingdom, then that's you. Rediscover the joy of being a generous host. Well, let's go back and review the chapter a little and see how Jesus has been doing this in this chapter of the gospel, how he has been uncovering the relative value of being aligned with God's kingdom purposes. Beginning with the future treasure that's been uncovered in the parable of the sower. Let's just think again about the two futures that are implied by this parable. On the one hand, as we were saying yesterday, there's a future that leads to destruction. 
Sure, there are different ways of getting there, described here, but they all lead to the same place. So take a look back at verse 4 of the chapter. There is seed that falls upon the path. Jesus says, the birds came and ate it up. Literally, the word there is devoured it. This, Jesus explains in verse 19, is the outcome of the evil one's desires. The one who desires the destruction of all things, rather like the demons we were talking about earlier, the one who desires the destruction of all things, wants people to hear about the kingdom and then do nothing at all about it. That's the non-compliant response we were talking about earlier. In verse 5, there's seed that falls on rocky places, unable to put down much in the way of roots, so all the energy of the plant goes into springing up quickly. It all looks very impressive in a short amount of time. Without the deep roots, the plant is quickly scorched and burnt by the sun. I look across the explanation here. Jesus says, verse 21, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, such a person quickly falls away. And that, I think, is very interesting. That's very striking. For such a person, the cost of persecution has put them off from persevering. They've got it wrong. Think about the table we began with. Uh, They've made a mistake about the relative cost of persecution relative to the gains in the future or relative to the punishment in the future. They've got it wrong. The cost of persevering with the word, uh, of not persevering with with the word is, is far worse than the cost of persecution. And back in verse 7, there's a final way to destruction. There's seed which falls among the thorns. So the thorns choke or or strangle the plant. It's a, it's a word that's sometimes used for drowning. Now, we can be pretty sure, I think, that the outcome here is not good for this kind of person. And again, it's instructed to look over to the explanation. Verse 22 this time. Jesus explains that it's the, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth that choke the plant. And again, that's very striking, isn't it? This person has been deceived about the future and the relative value of being aligned with the kingdom of heaven. They've been deceived into thinking that wealth now is more valuable. But they are proved wrong. Very wrong. So there are many ways to destruction. On the other hand, of course, there is a much more positive future held up to us here. There's the seed that falls on the good soil. And as we were thinking about yesterday, this represents the one who hears the word and understands it and responds to it decisively and permanently and fruitfully. And the result is a living future, a productive future. Uh, Jesus doesn't really say much more than that here. Uh, We might guess here, given that Matthew's Gospel as a whole, as we've been saying, is all about encouraging us in discipleship and disciple-making, that he has the fruits of true discipleship and the fruits of disciple-making in in mind here. Uh, Nevertheless, whatever the crop represents, this picture of a fruitful productivity, it is a very attractive one, isn't it? Who wouldn't want a life like this? This is seed, if you like, doing what it should do, producing what it should produce. Uh, This is seed, it's a slightly dreadful term, but it's fulfilling its true potential. 
compare that to what happens in the other cases, and you have a potent argument for complying with God's word. Now, the other parables in chapter 13 also present to us different pictures of the future. They do so in slightly different ways. The parable of the mustard seed, for example, is shown a picture of a glorious future we might have missed out on if we'd just been led by mere appearances. In the parables of the weed and the dragnet, it's the future under God's judgment which is emphasized more than anything else. So verse 30, the weeds are tied into bundles to be burned. Verse 48, the bad fish are simply thrown away. Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, do not be so foolish as to underestimate the severity of the future apart from the will and purpose of God. Go that way and you will be bitterly regretting it forever. I think it's the parables of the the treasure and the pearl that make the point about the relative value of the kingdom most powerfully and concisely. It's so valuable that it's worth giving up everything for in the present. So just a few verses here, but very, very potent. So from verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of the heavens is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and he sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he'd found one priceless pearl, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. I love that picture of selling everything with joy uh, there in verse 44. What must it have been like in that man's household, I wonder? So he runs back home. He digs out every important document he can find from the filing cabinet. He sells every policy he's got, every investment, his pension, his life savings. He empties every bank account. He runs around the house, picking up everything, taking it outside for the largest yard sale his street has ever seen. He sells the car. He sells the caravan. He puts the house for sale as well. He sells absolutely everything so that he can purchase that field. His poor wife comes home and nearly collapses in panic. So all his favourite toys are out there in the yard sale, the TV, the PS3, even the espresso machine. (laughs) But all her favourite things are out there too. And she's tearing her hair out, jumping up and down. Oh, oh, what are you doing? I shouldn't have listened. I should have listened to my mother about you. Have you gone crazy? No, I haven't gone crazy, he says, giving her a huge hug, grinning from ear to ear. I've gone far from crazy. You will see. But as before, I want to claim that what Jesus is doing through these the parables in this chapter uncovering great treasure for us. He's also doing more widely in his preaching and teaching. What's more, God is doing it more widely across the Bible. Indeed, one of the main purposes of reading the Bible is seeing the relative value of these two future paths. 
And this is the claim I'm going to make at this point. That one of the key functions of Scripture is to persuade us of the relative long-term value of complying with God's purposes for the world. This presentation is an honest presentation. It's honest about the short-term cost, but it is also clear about the long-term difference. And to demonstrate that to you, all I'm going to do really is read from a a selection of the the verses that that I've listed there on your handout. First, some extracts from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, for example. Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek. Uh, That is, blessed are those who in, in, in the present control their desire to fight or uh, uh, fight for a share or position, fighting like animals. Blessed are the meek, for they, in the future, will inherit the earth. Uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this, Don't straw, t- treasure store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and decomposition destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Treasure store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor decomposition destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And when heaven and earth are reunited in the future, that treasure will be yours. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Honest about the short-term cost, the road is narrow and hard, says Jesus, but it does lead to life. Chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Then Jesus said this to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? What will a man give in exchange for his life? But of course it's not just Matthew's Gospel. John chapter 16 verse 33 Jesus again, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Romans chapter 8 now. Romans chapter 8 verses 28 and 32. Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are being called according to his purpose. Even though we also know the pain of waiting in this groaning creation. But we wait with confidence because, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? 1 Corinthians 15. The conclusion. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yes, it will be hard, 
But no, it is not in vain. Philippians chapter 3, Paul's own example. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you as the future treasure for us, uncovered by the gospel. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you will have to struggle in various trials. In 2009, the BBC News reported that a Tel Aviv woman had been searching through an Israeli, through Israeli rubbish dumps after she'd accidentally thrown away a mattress containing one million US dollars. And the woman, who was identified only as someone called Anat, had brought a new mattress for her mother as a surprise and thrown away the old one. When the woman realized her mistake, it was pretty much too late. She rushed out to retrieve the mattress, but it had already been taken away. She rushed to the local dump only to find the mattress had been shipped shipped off to one of the larger landfill sites, along with other 3,000 other tons of rubbish collected that day. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Or the conversation around dinner that evening. For the treasure of the kingdom is worth much more than one million US dollars. We should certainly be more careful with that. Uh, in the States some time ago, a work by Jackson Pollock, you may have heard of Jackson Pollock, he's an abstract artist, sometimes known as Jack the Dripper. Um, it was this painting, actually. Uh, this painting, it was 2006, was sold for $140 million. Uh, I have to warn you, just in case you were thinking of doing this, if you, if you were thinking of giving me a, a Jackson Pollock for Christmas, well, there's a bit of a danger there because I might not recognize it. I might not recognize the value of the thing you gave me. I'd probably say something like, I'll try to be polite about it, I'm sure, Thanks, you know, you're very kind. But in all honesty, you'll probably end up 
in the same pile of stuff as the, the artwork our, our children bring, bring back from school. Um, you know, that pile sort of kept for a while, and then most of it after a suitable time, quietly binned. Don't tell them this, by the way. And that would be £140 million lost. But our relationship with our Father in Heaven is far more valuable than that, says Jesus. And obviously so. Don't fail to see just how valuable it is. Don't underestimate the supreme value of being aligned with God's kingdom purposes. And the more we get this right, the more we see this clearly, the more our behavior now will also become aligned with God's kingdom purposes. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. These are very frequently quoted, but they're worth quoting again. This is from his essay called The Weight of Glory. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promising, promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Uh, John Piper, the American preacher, makes a very similar point in this this largely excellent book called uh, Future Grace. Uh, Piper's argument is that we're changed in the present by pursuing the future grace of God. So certainly we look back to what an amazing thing uh, that Christ has done for us in the past. That is vital. But that points us forward to the amazing future that Christ has opened up for us. And as we contemplate that future, we can recognize that what God is offering us is better, deeper, superior to anything the world has to offer. And it's really only as we contemplate the value of that that we're not going to be taken in by the deceit of lies and the deceit of sin. What Piper's saying is that if we do contemplate that, then we will be changed. So I mentioned earlier that the problem of faltering compliance and how that may express itself in all sorts of different ways... But how can we be anxious when we know that the God our Father has guaranteed the future with nothing less than the death of his Son? How can we be proud knowing the magnitude of that grace? How can we be impatient when the gift is so staggeringly huge it is simply worth waiting for? Likewise, how can we be covetous when its value so outweighs anything else we could imagine? What is the point of pursuing the fleeting pleasures of lust when compared to the eternal joy that we're being offered? And that's just part of the power of God's purposes in the world through his word. You might remember that I began yesterday by addressing the person who finds the the Bible difficult. The person who can't see how it's worth the effort to engage with the scriptures and has been tempted to ease off and, and maybe look for something a little less demanding. And I said that that is understandable. You know, the Bible is hard. 
But I hope you've also begun to see now, in part anyway, why the Bible is so hard. It's part of God's sovereign purposes uncovered for us in Matthew chapter 13 that some will hear but not hear. Some will hear and eventually give up on this. They won't persevere. They won't persist. But it is also his sovereign purpose that some will hear and be hooked and be drawn in and be drawn to comply. Overcoming all of the, the difficulties under Jesus' gentle instruction. And they keep going and they keep growing because they've seen a glimpse of the treasure of the kingdom. Just as we've been thinking about in this session. Maybe they've seen uh, something of the, the joy open to the teacher who's, who's willing to pass on that treasure to other people. Jesus has promised us that people who comply and and persevere like that are going to be richly rewarded. And my desire over these sessions is that that you should want to be a part of all that more than you should want anything else in the world. And to those older brothers and sisters here today, to those who know the evangelical essentials and have defended the Bible as the Word of God in a, in a twisted and corrupt generation. Well, be encouraged what, by what Jesus has taught and promised in this, this chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Be encouraged to keep defending the evangelical essentials that we've been running through over these two days. But, but more than that, be encouraged to feast on the experience the Bible opens up for us. And take note that the way to engage the next generation to be Bible people is is probably not through slogans or church politics, although they have their place. But by opening up that experience, that participation in the great things that God is doing through his word. But let me leave the last word here to Spurgeon. Uh, You may have heard the story that Spurgeon once said, uh, defend the Bible, I'd sooner defend a lion. Um, What he actually said, though, is longer than that, and very interesting when you look at it in detail. This is what he said at the annual meeting of the British and Foreign Bible Society back in 1875. And it's worth recounting in full, I think. He says this, there seems to me have to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. I do not know whether you see that line. It's distinctly before my eyes now. A number of persons advanced to attack him while a host of us would defend the grand old monarch, perhaps the British lion, with all our strength. Many suggestions are made, much advice is offered. This weapon is recommended and the other. Well, pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They are gone. He no longer goes forth in his strength and his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. 
The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. And this, I guess, is what I've been trying to say, but which uh, chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel has said, with real power and authority, let the lion of the Bible loose. Let the lion of the Bible loose in your own lives, bringing you vision and purpose and joy. And let's let the lion of the Bible loose in the world, bringing God's sovereign and unstoppable purposes to pass to the glory of his name. Let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do often fall into the trap of thinking that we need to defend the Bible. And we recognize there is a place for that. But help us also to see the supreme authority and power that lies behind those words, which is your authority and power, as we've been seeing over these two days. Give us confidence then in you and your power and authority to bring your purposes to pass. And we pray once again that you would draw us up into that, to experience that, to be a part of that event. And as we've been thinking about this morning, we pray that you would evermore show us the true value of being a part of that, how it overshadows all other things, that we may persevere joyfully, even under suffering, to the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.